Let's turn to uh, Luke chapter 19. We're continuing to uh, study in the Gospel of Luke. There is a uh, television series um, on TV, obviously, that um, is called The Undercover Boss. Has anybody ever seen that? Oh, a few of you have. Okay, so for those of you who don't know about it or haven't heard about it, it's an interesting show. Uh, The producers of the show take a boss, uh, a CEO of a well-known corporation, and they disguise him in such a way that his employees don't recognize him. And they send him into one of his corporate stores. So, for example, if, if he's the head of a retail chain of stores, they'll disguise him as somebody who is a new employee that is coming to work in one of the local stores. And the local store staff have to teach him how to run the cash register or stock the shelves or whatever it is that they do. If he's the CEO of a warehousing distribution center, then they send him in with overalls and he's to work the forklift or uh, count inventory or check it in or check it out or drive a truck or something along those lines. If he's the CEO of a hotel chain, he goes in and he learns what it is to do housekeeping, uh, making beds and cleaning toilets and things like that. If he's the CEO of whatever, he becomes the lowest person in the company. Uh, And the idea is for him to see what the other employees are up against, to see what it is that they have to do, what they face, and to rub shoulders with them uh, side by side. And the thing is, he's disguised. They don't know who he is. You know, the, the CEOs don't have his picture in all the retail stores as, you know, like the head of the, uh, of the company. And so they don't know who he is. And um, so he comes and he hears their struggles and he hears their needs. And here's the deal. He's the CEO. He's the chief executive officer of the company. Might be his own company. Might be his father's company. But whatever, he's the guy in charge who has the right and the authority to make changes, and he can do it. So at the end of the show, the CEO brings the employees into corporate headquarters. The ones that he's worked with now come to corporate headquarters, and uh, they, they see him. He's no longer wearing overalls. He's now wearing his three-piece suit. He's back in his tailored suit. They can hardly believe their eyes as they see him for the first time But it's really not the first time. They now see him for who he is. He's the boss. He's the big cheese. And they're shocked and they're surprised because they rubbed shoulders with him. They they even trained him. But they didn't realize that all along he was taking notes. He was observing what they were doing. He was observing what kind of employees they were. And um, in the big reveal... The CEO either rewards those who were faithful in their service or he chastises them for work that was poorly done. In some cases, he even fires them. Some of the employees are given rewards that... I've seen a couple of episodes where the rewards far exceed anything these people have done. And I think, wow, that's just like the Lord. That's how he treats us. 
Others are reprimanded, and like I say, some are even fired. It's been interesting to me to see a couple of the episodes where the boss is brought to tears by what he sees. He's brought to tears by what he sees and by what he hears. And sometimes he is angered at what goes on within the company behind his back. Once he is revealed as the CEO and it's obvious who he is, he often makes sweeping changes in the, in the company. Jesus is the undercover boss. Jesus came to earth incognito. We didn't recognize who he was. His, the boss is on the floor. And what I mean by that is God became a man. And he dwelt among us as a man. In Isaiah chapter 53, it says this, He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. The New Living Translation says it this way, There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He came in the disguise of human flesh, our overalls. And we thought he was just a new employee, a new kid on the block, someone else just like us. It wasn't obvious to us that he was the CEO. He was the boss. He is God. And so he enters into the city of Jerusalem, and he enters to those who are his people. And if you could see the expressions on each face, you would see that the reaction is different one to another. Some were singing his praises. Some wanted to kill him. And over the last couple of weeks, we've looked at uh, Luke chapter 19, and we've seen his arrival into the city of Jerusalem. It was a Monday, and as the day wore on, he came to the temple. Now, when it says in the scripture he came to the temple, it doesn't mean that he actually went inside the temple building. You have to realize that you have a temple, and then there's a courtyard, and a courtyard, and a courtyard. And the outermost courtyard is the courtyard of the Gentiles. It's the place where the Gentiles could come up to a line and no further. That was it. And they were allowed to come there and seek God's help. It was to be a place of prayer for the nations. It was to be a place where people who weren't, weren't Jews could come and uh, solicit God's favor, if, if you will. And that's the outer court, the court of the Gentiles. And that's where he came. And as he looked, it was the afternoon and as the sun was setting or about to set, he looked at the courtyard and he saw things that grieved him, that broke his heart. And he turned around and he went out of the city. Jesus didn't stay inside Jerusalem. He went back over the Mount of Olives to Bethany. And you remember the place, Bethany? It's a place where Jesus loved to be. It was, there was a home there. It was the home of Mary and Martha and of Lazarus. Lazarus, whom he had just raised from the dead. And he and his disciples went there to stay, and they uh, stayed with them overnight. It was Monday. I think as he went back over the Mount of Olives and as he stayed at the home that night, he must have thought long and hard about the things that he saw in the temple courtyard that day. This was his father's house. 
This was his father's house. It was his place. If I go back to the illustration, he was the CEO. And the employees were trashing his house. They were trashing his place of business. You say, well, really? Is that his business? Yeah, do you remember what Jesus said early on when he was just a youngster and his parents went looking for him? He was 12 years old. He said, did you not know that I must be about my father's business? What was his father's business? It was the word of God. It was teaching the truth. It was justice. It was righteousness. It was holiness. That was his father's business. And they were making the temple of God into a den of thieves. Must have grieved his heart. He was angered. The disciples, as you know, expected him to come to Jerusalem and overthrow the Roman government and to set up his kingdom on earth. But he must take care of his father's business first. First things first. There were social issues to deal with, no doubt. There were many wrongs that would need to be made right. But first things first. Peter says in 1 Peter 4.17, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And that's where he comes. To begin judgment at the house of God. The next morning was Tuesday. And on Tuesday, he leaves Mary and Martha and Lazarus home and he comes back to Jerusalem and he comes into the city. And we pick up the story in Luke chapter 19, verse 45. Then he went into the temple, and again, this is referring to the courtyard of the temple, and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, It is written, My house is a house of prayer. But you have made it into a den of thieves. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him and were unable to do anything, for all the people were very attentive to him. Tens of thousands of people had gathered together for the Passover. It was the time of the year when people gathered to Jerusalem, and there they were to celebrate together the feast of the, of the Passover. God had instructed his people back in Egypt that uh, on the first uh, Passover night that they were to take a lamb, a male, firstborn, unblemished, and they were to sacrifice that lamb um, as a, an offering to the Lord, and the blood of that lamb was to be applied on the doorpost and the lintel, and when God saw the blood, he would pass over it. That feast was to be a memorial feast for Israel's history, for the rest of Israel's history. And here they were, uh, hundreds of years later, celebrating the Passover. And the, the city of Jerusalem swelled with people to come in and to celebrate that feast. And even though a family could bring with them, so you have to understand this, here's the city of Jerusalem, but people, most of the people didn't live in Jerusalem. Many people did, but most didn't. Most lived in Bethany, Bethsaida. Galilee, other places, but they all gathered together in one place. So they traveled to Jerusalem for this feast. And they could have brought their own lamb with them, the firstborn, the young one, the one that was unblemished. But then they would have to take the lamb and they would have to give it to the priest to inspect. And the priest would look at it and go, well, I see a flaw here. I see a blemish here. You can't use this lamb. You have to buy one of the temple lambs instead. 
And so they would have to dispose of that lamb, and they would have to buy a different lamb, a lamb that the priests would supply through their vendors that were filling the courtyards with lambs and, and, and offerings and sacrifices. And the way it worked was that these people were now forced to buy lambs at an inflated price. Some say that it was even ten times the price of a typical lamb or more. Um, some said that it was a 25% cut that the priests would get off of the sale of these sacrificial animals. They were merchandising sacrifices and profiting from them, and the people were paying exorbitant prices so that they could worship the Lord. And so this massive farmer's market uh, was under the supervision of the high priests. In fact, the, there were two high priests. One was Annas and one was Caiaphas. Both are named in the Scripture in various parts of the New Testament. This was known as Annas Bazaar. It was his place. It was bizarre, but it was bizarre in the other sense. But it, the, he was profiting from the sale of these sacrificial animals. Not only so, but there was a temple tax that was due once a year by all of the people of Israel. And the people of Israel could pay this temple tax in their own hometown uh, at any time during the year. But if they had not paid it by this date, by this time, it was due. And so they would come with their Roman coinage. And on the coins, there were pictures imprinted or uh, stamped into the coins of Roman, you know, like, like Caesar. Whose inscription, Jesus said, we'll look at this next week. Whose inscription is on this? Well, Caesar's. So Caesar's inscription is on it. You're bringing it to the temple as a payment of the temple tax. The problem is that that's idolatry in the eyes of the Pharisees and, and those who are the church, not the church, but the temple leaders. And so they look and they go, oh, you can't pay with Roman money. You have to pay a different way. So trade your Roman money through our um, money exchange, okay? And we will give you the real money you can use, but it's going to cost you. How many of you have traveled overseas? How many of you have taken cash and exchanged it at the airport? Don't ever do that. Don't ever do that, okay? Word one on travel. Don't ever exchange your money at the airport. You're going to get ripped off. There was a surcharge for this of 25%. So you give a dollar, you get 75 cents back. And you're losing. They're ripping you off. And they're profiting from the temple tax as well. And so it didn't matter if the people that were coming were poor and they were buying turtle doves as the lowest Christ offering, or they were buying a lamb, it didn't matter. They were ripping people off from the rich to the poor. And the undercover boss was there. And he said, it's enough. It's enough. It's enough. The temple court of the Gentiles was to be a house of prayer. That's what Jesus said. And they had turned it into a den of thieves. And just as he had done at the beginning of his ministry... So he did at the end of his ministry, and he took the money changers' tables and he overthrew them 
uh, in the temple court. I'll never forget, Howard, you probably remember this too from your year, uh, when, I, when we were going through this passage or a similar passage in the Gospels, and Gene Gibson was teaching uh, in the intern program, and he came and he was, he was talking about the Lord Jesus and how he came in here and the anger that must have filled his heart over what was going on, the abuse uh, that was going on by the priests and by those that they had hired. And he's sitting at his desk, a table in the, uh, in the intern classroom, and we're all in a U-shaped desk area around him and he stands up and he literally throws the desk over and it's coming right at us and we all jump back and and his papers and everything go flying and I tell you I'll never forget it did he do the same thing never forget it this wasn't Jesus simply going over and going you know and nobody really understood you know as the tables flopped over what happened he did this violently He did this in a way that was very obvious. In John's gospel, at the beginning of his ministry, he made whips and he drove them out. They had made God's house, his father's house, into a den of thieves. And he kicked out the stools from under those who were buying and selling sacrificial animals and he literally drove them out of the temple. In addition to the sale of sacrificial animals, in addition to the ripping off of the people for the temple tax, they had made a pathway through this. It's like opening this side door over here and opening this door and the outside door here and saying, okay, anybody who wants to come has to pass through here, bring your merchandise with you. And in the middle of the meeting, they're just bringing wares through here and donkeys are going through and they're, they're bringing all this stuff through the middle of a place that is dedicated to prayer. Can you imagine? That's what it was like. God had his boots on the ground, and the corruption must end. Judgment must begin at the house of God. It is his father's house, and as Psalm 69.9 says, zeal for your house has eaten me up. Well, you say, well, we don't have a temple today. So, (laughs) that's good. These abuses don't happen now. It's not like it was then, you know, I mean, we're very civilized people, and um, we don't have this kind of thing going on. Really? How do we apply this passage to our hearts and in our lives today? Well, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, it's probably up on the thing. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own. For you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Do you know that God, believers, God has come to us incognito? He's the undercover boss once again. But he's not walking among us. He's not physically present with us. But instead, the Holy Spirit of God dwells in his temple today. And you are the temple of God. He is incognito. He's in you. We are the temple. Not made with hands. Not made with 
stones and mortar, not made like this building. But rather your body is the temple of God and the Holy Spirit of God resides within you. And your body does not belong to you, but to Him who gave it to you. In addition to that, the passage says that you've been bought with a price. The price that He paid for you is His own precious blood. He purchased you with the cost of His own life. He is the undercover boss. And He dwells in His temple. And I must ask you, and I must ask myself, what are we doing with His temple today? What are we doing? Are we glorifying God in our bodies? Or have we made this temple a place of corruption? Because that's what was happening with the temple, the physical temple. Therefore, he concludes, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which belong to God. Well, how do you do that? How do you glorify God in your body? Paul explains it in, earlier in 1 Corinthians 6 where he says this, foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. The idea of that um, statement there is this. We all have a physical desire for food. And when that physical desire is aroused, we eat to satisfy that desire for food. And he says, it's fine. That's a normal, natural desire. God gave it to you. You eat. But he said, that both it, the food and the, the stomach, it's, it's going to be destroyed. He's going to destroy both. That has to do with food and the stomach. But he says, he says something else here next. Now, the body is not for sexual immorality. You might have a similar desire just like food, and you satisfy that desire. He says, when it comes to sexual immorality, that is not what you do. The body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. The term sexual immorality here is the, is the word in Greek, pornea. Have you heard that word before, similar? Porn? Okay. That is what he, that's where we get that word from in English, porn, pornea. Pornography. It includes that. But this is a very broad term that is used here. And it includes all forms of sexual immorality, whether, whether sexual immorality in our thoughts or in our actions, from fornication to adultery, from the thoughts of our heart to the actions physically. Our response as believers, he says it here very clearly, is flee sexual immorality. Run. Run. 
And we have a, a, a beautiful illustration of this in the Old Testament with uh, the case of Joseph. Joseph was tempted. Uh, she, the, the woman tried to seduce him. And he put a few healthy miles between him and the tempter. And that's what we are called to do here. Run. Flee. He left his coat and he ran. He says, look, I don't need this. Take, take the coat. I'm going. I'm out of here. And he ran. The Lord has invited you, or has actually visited you, incognito. He is the undercover boss in your body. He is the undercover boss of your body and of your mind, of your spirit. And he came to you to see what you're doing with his temple because your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. What are you doing with it? How are you using the temple of God? Think about it. Is it time to overthrow the tables? To drive out the offenders? To send them packing? Throw out the porno, erase it, delete it, abandon it, and commit yourself to purity of the body and the mind. Flee immorality. Confess your sins before the Lord and ask Him to forgive and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And He will do that. He is faithful and He is just to do so. And He wants to cleanse you of all of your sin. Glorify God in your body and your spirit. Never let the corruption in again. 1 Peter 4.17 again. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Well, the next section is in Luke 20. And it uh, has to do with the reaction that Jesus got. When the undercover boss enters his own place of business and then he calls him, his employees uh, finally at the end to uh, the headquarters and they understand who he is for the first time, the reaction on their faces is priceless. It really is. For some, it's joy because they did well. And for those who had been doing wrong, it's fear. Well, the reaction of the religious leaders here is quite revealing. They think they are in charge. They think this is their business. And so they question his authority, but they don't realize that standing before them is Jesus, the undercover boss. Luke 20, verse 1. Now it happened on one of those days, as he taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel, that the chief priests and the scribes, together with the elders, confronted him and spoke to him, saying, Tell us... By what authority are you doing these things? Or who is he who gave you this authority? But he answered and said to them, I will also ask you one thing. Answer me. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not then believe him? But if we say from men... All the people will stone us, for they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where, he was from, where it was from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Jesus is now in his place of business, conducting his father's business. And he was teaching the people, he was preaching to the crowd, 
and some of the, shall we say, employees um, confronted him. And they asked two questions. They demanded, by what authority are you doing all these things? And who gave you the right? Here's the boss. And they're asking him for his credentials. Asking him to prove to them that he has some authority to do what he's doing. Who gave you this authority? Well, they certainly knew it didn't come from them. Because, and they thought they were in authority. So they're questioning, well, who gave you this right to do so? So they asked him a question. Did John's authority to baptize come from heaven, or did it come from men, you? Did it come from you? Tough question. Because the answer was going to be revealing as to what was in their heart. Well, they didn't believe in John, otherwise they would have followed him. And they even say that amongst themselves. They say, well, if we say he's from God, that his authority to do this was from God, then we're in trouble because we didn't follow him. They don't want to know the truth. And so they begin to wrestle with the question. They know what the truthful answer is, but they refuse to give it. If they follow John, or if they say John's authority was from heaven, why didn't they believe him? What, what does that mean? Why didn't they repent as John called them to? He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And they refused to repent. And so they're saying, well, if we say it's from God, then we'd have to say, why didn't we follow him? Why didn't we do what he said? But if we say it's from men, there's going to be a revolt among the people because the people believe it was from God. So they claim not to know. Well, by implication, Jesus is saying that John's authority came from above. The same authority that John operated under is the same authority that Jesus is operating under. Both Authority, the authority came from the top down. Jesus' authority, uh, God the Father had sent both John as his servant and Jesus as his son to the people to call them back to the Father. And they refused. The authority came from upper management. The next section of Luke's Gospel also fits our illustration. So go back to the TV show, Undercover Boss, and the CEO brings his employees to the company headquarters. What is it? What time is it? It's judgment time. It's judgment time. It's the big reveal. It's when the CEO is no longer undercover. He's no longer wearing dirty overalls. But he's wearing a three-piece suit. He's no longer pushing a broom. But he's seated behind his desk at the company headquarters, in his office. The authority that he has is um, super obvious now. They know full well who he is. He has been revealed as the one in charge, having all authority to reward or to punish his employees and how they have performed their jobs. Well, Jesus now tells a parable. And in this parable, we see his authority. It's a time of judgment. It's the time of the big reveal. It transports us forward to a time when he is no longer despised and rejected of men. He is no longer incognito among us. He is no longer wearing a servant's garment. Rather, he is high and he is lifted up and his the, uh, train fills the temple. He is God. 
and he's revealed as God. He is no longer pushing a broom, shall we say, but rather he is seated on a throne. He is seated in the, um, at company headquarters, heaven. The authority that he has is now obvious to all. And every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He will be revealed as the one in charge, having all authority given to him to judge, to reward, or to punish every one of us for the deeds done in our bodies. And so we come to Luke chapter 20, verse 9, and this is the parable that he tells. Then he began to tell the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard, leased it to vine dressers, and went into a far country for a long time. Now, let me stop there for a second. There's somebody who owns a vineyard. It's a place where the grapes are grown. The idea is that in a lease situation, the landowner still owns the land. But he is saying, okay, I am going to be an absentee owner, and I'm going to give the right of caring for this vineyard, the produce of the vineyard, the wine that comes from the vineyard, and everything associated with it, I'm going to lease it out to tenant farmers. And those tenant farmers are going to produce fruit. And I will come at an appointed time and I will gather a profit from what they're doing. I want fruit from it. It's mine. It's my land. It's my vineyard. And I want, in return for letting them benefit from it, I want something in return. Okay, that's the idea of this story here. We're not tenant farmers, so just in case you didn't get it, that's what it is. Now, at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another servant and they beat him also, treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent a third and they wounded him also and cast him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Probably they will respect him when they see him when they see him. And when the vine dressers saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, Certainly not. Then he looked at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Well, the parable has a number of characters in it. We want to look at them one at a time. First, there's the landowner, the man who planted the vineyard and then leased it to the vine dressers. As I said, the vine dressers were tenant farmers. They were supposed to take care of the vineyard, the grapes, and the land. And they were supposed to give him something in return for allowing them to work the land. It was their lease payment. The landowner in this case is guess who? It's God. And he leased the land, Israel, to tenant farmers, the leaders of Israel. And the leaders of Israel were to care for the land and they were to care for the people. And the landowner sent servants to the leaders of Israel to collect some of the fruit of that land. God wanted fruit from his people, Israel. 
and the, the servants that he sent were the prophets. And the prophets went out and they preached and they pled with the people to produce fruit of repentance, to turn to God. And instead of turning to God, they abused the prophets. And some of them they stoned, and some of them they beat up, and they treated them all terribly, and some they even killed. God sent them that there might be repentance, that there might be fruit for God. But the leaders abused the prophets, as I said, and they stoned some of them to death. And we see a description of some of them in Hebrews chapter 11. I'm quoting this one from the New Living Translation, so it might be a little bit different. Some were jeered at, and their backs were cut open with whips. Others were chained in prisons. Some died by stoning. Some were sawed in half, and others were killed with the sword. Some went about wearing skins of sheep and goats, destitute and oppressed and mistreated. They were too good for this world, wandering over deserts and mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. And they abused them all. Every prophet that was sent to Israel was abused by the people. And they did not produce fruit for God. It was his right to to receive fruit. It was his vineyard. So the landowner said, well, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Probably they will respect him when they see him. And here was the landowner's beloved son standing in their midst, Jesus, telling them this parable. Would they respect him? Would they bow to his authority right there and then? No, they did exactly what Jesus predicts in the parable. In just a few days, they're calling out for his crucifixion. We will not have this man reign over us. And there is rebellion among the tenant farmers. Well, what will the CEO do? What will the boss do? What will God do with those who crucified his beloved son? Those who will not repent of their sins are actually just as guilty as the people that he's talking to here. Just as guilty as those who held the hammer and struck the nails into his hands and crucified the Lord of glory. But God will take away the vineyard, he says, and he will give it to others. Verse uh, 14 again. When the vine dressers saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. And they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the, vi- the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, certainly not. The the leaders knew that he was speaking about them. They recognized that. And Jesus in this passage is actually referring back to, although it's a parable, unique in itself, he's actually referring back to a passage in Isaiah chapter 5. And I want to look at that for a minute. Isaiah predicts this very thing will happen. And he talks about Israel in the same way the Lord is talking about her here. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it, so he expected it to bring forth good grapes, 
but it brought forth wild grapes. I'm going to stop there for a minute. Some of you have just finished studying the book of Joshua. And in the book of Joshua, you have the Lord telling his people to go into the land and take possession of the land. And as they take possession of various parts of the land, it's God at work clearing out the rubble, preparing the land to plant his vineyard, his people. And he expects fruit from his people. And he plants um, a good vineyard. And now, O inhabitants, verse 3, of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now please tell me what, uh, and now please let me tell you what I will do with my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it shall be burned, and break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. Does that sound familiar to you? Doesn't it sound like what Jesus just finished saying to them a day before? that the walls of the temple and everything that they saw would be cast down and not one stone left upon another? It sounds very, very similar. And he's saying the same thing here. I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they shall rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He, and here's the key. What is the fruit he's looking for? He looked for justice, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. Skip down to verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good, and good evil. Who put darkness for light, and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet, and sweet for bitter. Talk about being upside down in their justice and in righteousness. That's what he's talking about here. Who, um, who, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Woe to men mighty at drinking wine. Woe to men valiant for mixing intoxicating drink. Who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away justice from the righteous man. And he's talking about the, the corruption that is going on in the land of Israel. And there's a very strong link here to um, alcohol and alcohol abuse and all, of, all the rest of it. I don't know if you remember in Proverbs where um, King Lemuel is being uh, counseled, and he's counseled not to go after strong drink, not to go after drink. Why? Because it perverts justice. It's the very same thing that he's talking about here. And I want to counsel you. I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, think about this when it comes to alcohol. Think about this when it comes to drugs. Think about this in anything that is intoxicating. It perverts justice and righteousness. It corrupts. Therefore, as the fire devours the stubble and the flame consumes the chaff, so their root will be as rottenness and their blossom will ascend like dust because they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despise the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the anger of the Lord is aroused against his people. He has stretched out his hand against them and stricken them, and the hills trembled. Their carcasses were as refuse in the midst of the street. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. God is still looking for justice. God is still looking for holiness. God is still looking for righteousness as fruit in his people. 
Instead, he finds oppression and injustice and drunkenness and bribery and wickedness. Judgment, as Peter said, must first come to the house of God. And it does. If Jesus is the undercover boss and he dwells within us today, what does he see? He has come to his temple. We are his temple. And what does he see? And what will he do? His desire is that we might be pure and holy and righteous and just and fair in all of our ways. That's what he desires. If he has come into our lives today, what would he say about me? What would he say about you? Well, there are two responses to the Lord, and he states them clearly in verses 17 and 18. Then he looked at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. There is a story, I don't know if it's true, but it has withstood the test of um, millennium anyway, millennia. And that is that at the time of the building of the temple, there was an odd stone. It was different than all of the rest. And when it arrived at the building site, the builders looked at it and go, this doesn't belong here. And they rejected it. They tossed it to the side. And finally, as the building was being uh, built, they came to the, the part where there is a chief capstone or a, a chief stone in the building. I don't know if you've ever seen a doorway um, in, a, in a building. And very often there is a, an odd-shaped stone that's kind of like a, I don't know what they call it, it's wedged anyway. There's probably a particular name for it, but we'll call it the keystone. Yeah, the capstone, the, the chief cornerstone. And it's the, it's the last piece of the puzzle that, that binds the whole thing together. And they got to that point in the building, and they called to the stonemasons and said, Hey, we're missing a part. We're missing the keystone. Where is it? They said, Hey, we sent that long ago. And they started rummaging through the, the yard and the waste and everything else that was out there, and they found the chief cornerstone, and they put it in its place as the chief cornerstone of the, of the building, the place the, that would be seen by all. Is it a true story? I don't know, but... It's, um, it fits well with what Jesus says here. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but whomever it falls will grind him to powder. It's interesting. Many people think that the Lord is talking about his two comings in that last verse. That when he came, he came humbly. He was rejected of men. He was tossed aside as being one that uh, didn't fit, didn't belong. We don't want this man. But when he comes again, he will come in judgment and he will crush to powder those that um, do not recognize him as Lord and Savior. When Jesus came the first time, they didn't recognize him. When he comes again, it will be obvious to all that he is, in fact, who he says he is. He is the King of kings and he is the Lord of lords. Is he? the King of kings and the Lord of lords in your heart, in your life today. Let's pray. Lord, we call you Lord because that's who you are. 
we recognize how often we take over the helm, we take over the reins of our life, and we act as though we are the boss, as though we are the one in charge. And Lord, it's, it's wrong, it's sin. We ask you to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, you plant a vineyard, you desire fruit from it, you come to your temple, you expect there to be prayer offered in that place, you expect there to be righteousness and holiness and equity. And Lord, we look at our own lives and we see, Lord, how far short we fall. We ask you, Lord, to cleanse us, purify us, and make us a people after God's own heart. Father, we pray that the Lord Jesus would be recognized by us on a day-to-day basis as being the one who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Lord over every area, over our thoughts, over our actions, over our life. We pray this in his name. Amen.